said, bittersweet. And today, where we're at in the scandalous God, the Gospel of Luke, it's kind of a bittersweet day. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of uh, genres of film. Uh, we're finally getting back to the theaters. Finally, we're going to move from like watching stuff on our TVs to watching stuff on the big screen again. And with that coming out this summer are all sorts of genres. You got action, you got adventure, comedy, drama, horror, sci-fi, westerns. Yeah, there's still westerns in the real world out there. All of those different genres, right? And we kind of get that. But every once in a while, you get the blessing or the bliss of a mixed genre, right? So you get the kind of action comedy or the romantic comedy, both of which usually have Ryan Reynolds or something like that, right? And so it's kind of a fun blend. But then occasionally, you get a weird blend. So you might get something like a dark comedy. So that might be like gross point blank. Or you get something really strange like a horror romance, which is anything where a girl meets a zombie boy and they fall in love, right? Those weird films. And every once in a while, you even get like a sci-fi Western, like Cowboys and Aliens, which for the record, I kind of liked, all right? So today is like that. It's like this weird mix of genres because today is all about the idea of celebration, which is beautiful, and betrayal, which is harsh, right? celebration and betrayal. So today is a celebratrayal if we're actually going with the mixing themes. And the reason I say it's that particular theme is because today starts in the Gospel of Luke what we call the passion narrative. So we've been in the final week of Jesus' life and ministry, but the passion story is what begins on that Thursday night of that final week and goes into Sunday morning, right? That's the passion narrative, that four-day stretch. And it's interesting because the Gospel of Luke dedicates three entire chapters of Jesus' life to four days. And one of those days is blank. We don't even know exactly what happens on Saturday. We just look at this Thursday, this Friday, and then this glorious Sunday morning. And that's what we're going to be starting to navigate today. But we want to kind of keep the essence of the story before us. And so we know that Jesus rode into town early in the week, Palm Sunday. It could have been Palm Monday. We're not exactly sure on the dates. And so we, we kind of celebrate Palm Sunday. But remember, he comes in on that Sunday. And the first thing he does is he goes to the temple and he cleanses it. He consecrates that space. When we think about Jesus going into the temple and tipping tables and driving out the money changers, we tend to think, oh, he's so angry. He's so frustrated. He's so furious. That's what he's doing. No, really what he's doing is he's consecrating it. And, and he consecrates because what he begins to immediately do is then articulate he begins to teach the message of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Jesus loves talking kingdom stuff. And so he's telling people, this is the good news. This is how we change the world. These are the values that will make a difference in everything. And he does this throughout the week. In fact, as we close out chapter 21 of the Gospel of Luke, it says, every day Jesus went to the temple to teach, and then every evening he returned to spend the night out on the Mount of Olives. And so the crowds, they gathered at the temple each morning to hear him. And so he goes in, cleanses, consecrates, articulates, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and he goes into the city and out of the city, into the city, out of the city, but finally on this Thursday, he will go in, he will teach kingdom and gospel, and he will leave, and he will do this for the last time as an articulator, and the next time he enters the city, it will be as an emancipator, right? Where, where he's going to move down this road of giving himself for our sins, giving himself to rescue us and liberate us and bring emancipation. 
And so as we get ready for today, I'm going to give us some space here to pray to ourselves. But also, as was shared, we're doing communion today. And and I just want to let you know in advance, if you're watching at home, this would be a great chance for you to maybe grab the elements for communion. Because the text today that we're in is actually that first communion. We're going to walk through the passage where Jesus sits down and breaks bread and has the cup and everything else. And, And the way we're going to do this is we're literally going to take it as we're walking through the passage. So this is going to be a little bit organic. We haven't necessarily done communion or we're passing out the trays for a while, so all the more it's going to be organic. As Jesus shares in the story, he's like, pass this out among yourselves. It means some of you in these rows down here, you're going to have to move over to here and pass it to those people. So the sharing element is going to be in this whole equation. And I love that because that's what family is all about. That's what this communion time is all about. And so it's going to be broken up a little bit, and I'm going to teach in between the different elements as they're passed out. We'll see some of the nuances that are unique to Luke than other versions. And so again, we're just trying to honor the spirit of how Jesus gave this to us and do it in a special way, seeing that our communion Sunday falls into the same, or on the same timeline as our text in Luke. And so personally, I I was very moved by the passage this week as I was thinking about it and and just really excited about the way we can do this today. And so I'm going to give us all just a moment to prepare, to reflect, especially for those of us who, again, we're following Christ. If you're not a Christian and you're here, really glad you're here. Thank you for all the things you could do. You took a Sunday out to be with us. We're grateful. This is the way we remember what Jesus has done for us. And when these trays come by you, if you don't follow Jesus, you're not a Christian, it's, it's totally cool to let that tray go by because this is something that we do in remembrance of the one that we trust as our God and Savior. And, and maybe from this, if you're not a Christian but you're here, you can learn about this and why we care about it so much and, and why it commemorates something that we're passionate about. And so with that, having said, uh, let's go ahead and just bow our heads for a moment, close our eyes, get into that personal space, talk to Jesus, and I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll get right to the text before us. Jesus, today is about you. In fact, every day is about you. Every breath that we breathe, every action we engage in, it's really all about you. We know that you came to give us life, give it abundant, that life is better with you. And I pray that we share that with the world, not simply in our words, which is critical, but in our disposition, our demeanor, our actions and reactions, that everything would be about living life in such a way that we do it all in remembrance of you. And so with this participation in your table even today, I pray that this becomes the iconic remembrance of what you've done for us and therefore what we do for you, not because we're earning anything, but because we are so grateful for the fact that you've earned everything for us. So prepare us today, our hearts and our souls, our dispositions, clear out the clutter of worry and thought or frustrations of life. Let us center on you now as we remember you and what you've done. We thank you, Jesus, and we praise you in your good name. Amen. So we are in Luke 22. If you want to take notes in our app, we do have some notes there, some blanks that you can fill in, particularly because today we are looking at three parts of the story, right? Three different aspects or elements that come out as we walk through this particular section. 
And if you are taking notes in the app and you're quickly trying to get there and tap to the right thing, we're going to start with number one. It's the simplest idea in the world for this particular type of event. It's the idea of the preparation. As we enter into this stage of the journey and the story, what we see is that there's preparation going on. And not just one preparation, but many different groups are preparing in many different ways. So there's going to be different preparations happening simultaneously. The reality of this, though, is that some of the preparation is very saintly, and other parts of the preparation are very sinister. And so we want to take note of all of this that's going on, and it begins in chapter 22, verse 1. It says, The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. So this is why not only has Jesus come to the city, but 2.5 million other people have all descended on the region around Jerusalem. They're coming for this big event. This is a big deal to them. So to get a sense of perspective, this is like their Christmas and New Year's all rolled into one for the Jewish culture. And technically, they're two different celebrations, but they're celebrated together because they have this union and cohesion that go all the way back to the Old Testament, right? So we think about the story of God played out through the people of Israel, and we remember there's this time where they're in Egypt, they're under the hand of Pharaoh, they're enslaved, and they want to be liberated, and God steps in with a man named Moses, and he's like, let my people go, and splits the Red Sea, and all that stuff happens. That is all connected to this idea of the Passover celebration. So it's a festival of remembrance. It's a holy time where they're thinking about how there's this one part of their their history where they were just entrenched in an absence of freedom and they were harshly treated and when all hope seems lost, God pierces the darkness and he brings liberation and emancipation. And so they're like, every year we're to remember and, and to pay tribute to that liberation. That's the Passover and unleavened bread ceremony. And we'll break down those pieces here in a little bit because it'll make more sense as we go further into the text. But it was an exciting time. And it was an exciting time, uh, particularly for the religious leaders, right? If it's like their Christmas, man, that's what they should be focusing on. They're preparing for this holy remembrance of all that God has done. But instead of preparing for the Passover, what we actually see is that they are planning a murder. And by the way, that shows you have bad priorities, all right? So verse two, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, they were plotting how to kill Jesus. So everybody else is planning for Passover. They're planning on how they can whack Jesus. But they were afraid of the people, it says. So while in their heart of hearts, they're like, man, we want to just off this guy. Give him some concrete slippers, send him to the bottom of the sea, right? We want to deal with him. We want to whack him, deal with him, be gone with him. But they're worried about the people. This shows how poor your your perceptions really are. Like you're more afraid of humans than you are of the God you're wanting to kill. That's problematic. That shows the condition of their heart. So in one sense, they're really bent toward destruction, but in another sense, they're kind of cowardly. Now, we don't know exactly why they're worried about the people. It may be that every day they've been coming and learning from Jesus at the temple, and so if they try to arrest Jesus in public, the people will kind of rally and fight the leaders. That might be part of it. But realistically, I think the leaders are being a little bit more practical. 
They know that there are millions of people there. And as soon as you do something that is a dramatic event amongst the crowd, no matter how the crowd parses out, some people are going to be with you, some people are going to be against you, and a peaceful protest can become an angry, violent mob quickly. And if it does, the Roman authorities are going to come in, they're going to crack skulls, and it's going to destroy the festival. People will die. It'll be mayhem and mischief and craziness. And they kind of know that, so they're like, ugh, we can't get them, but we want to get them. What we need is black ops. We need a spy. We need a mole. We need somebody that can work in the quiet and achieve our purposes, right? We need somebody to step in who can do it in the shadows. And no sooner do they think about this than one enters who is perfect for the shadows. One enters who is Judas. Or more accurately, Satan enters Judas and Judas enters in to the scene. Verse 3. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples. Right? So we know this character. The most famous of all traitors, right? Benedict Arnold, popular. Anakin Skywalker, well known. Judas, the ultimate traitor. But think about this. Actually, there are two traitors in the midst of the scene. One is a supernatural traitor, the other is a human traitor. Uh, One is Satan, Lucifer, this cohort uh, of a being that was once with God somewhere in the past, and we don't know the whole story, but he decided to be a traitor as well and betrays God and tries to overthrow God, and that's the story of him. Well, now he's in this new traitor that's the earthly traitor, but together they're working in concert. One worked against God the Father way back in the past. The new one works against God the Son in the present, and they're both just completely against the mission and plan of God to change the world. So they have this kind of bonding that goes on, right? So they're like the legion of doom at this point. Now, we don't know what happened with Judas to get to that space, right? Like, what were the series of events that opened him up to have this happen in his world? We're just not sure, right? Maybe in part, he was looking at Jesus and he was really paying attention, Right? Where everybody else thought Jesus is going to conquer, he's going to kick Rome's butt, he's going to set us all up as supreme. Judas was listening to where he was like, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to get wiped out for this. Like, Judas might have been the first guy to be like, Oh, wait, I see the winds are turning, and this is not going to be the Messiah I thought I was getting, and so I better figure out an exit strategy from this. That could be part of it. It could also be that he struggled with both envy and greed. Envy because, little known fact, uh, we see that Judas was the only one of the 12 who was not from the region of Galilee. He was an outsider. He was from the south. So he wasn't always maybe as close with the other 12. We don't fully know. But what we do know from the Gospel of John is that he was the treasurer, which means everybody trusted this guy to be the treasurer of the 12. But then John tells us he would often steal from the money bag. Right? So he's like, hey, nobody's watching. I think I'm going to go drinking. I'm going to take it from the giving of all the women who were supporting Jesus' ministry from Luke chapter 8. Right? So, so that's his deal. But that's Judas. What's behind Judas is this other entity, this other character, Satan, right? And Satan means the accuser. And that's exactly what he intends to do throughout the scene. He's going to accuse Jesus of being a false teacher. He's going to accuse Jesus of being a blasphemer. And ultimately what he's going to do, he's going to accuse Jesus of being dangerous for the future of Israel. 
right? That the leaders need to execute Jesus for their very future and existence is at stake. Now, here's what's so tragic about that. This is where the accuser uses the ultimate lie. He's been waiting since Luke 4 to spring his trap again, right? He tried to tempt Jesus. Jesus didn't go with it. Now he's back again, just bedlam and mayhem, right? And he's gonna say, listen, Jesus taught you the way of peace, but that's not the way of peace, Remember when Jesus rides into the city and he talks about that? He goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Had you accepted the way of peace, calamity wouldn't befall you. The way of peace is the Sermon on the Mount. The way of peace is how you sow peace in the world. Had Israel embraced Jesus and embraced the kingdom message, they wouldn't have had their devastation in 70 AD. But instead they go, no, 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 his way is not the way. He's a softy, he's a loser, he's a pushover. We need might, strength, and force to secure our future. And so with that, Satan's gonna be like, that's right, Jesus is dangerous to your future with all of his mamby-pamby meekness, right? So you gotta get rid of him. He's bad for you. So the accuser is in play. This human Judas, with all of his greed and envy, he's in play. So in concert, They went to the leading priests, verse 4, and the captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. And man, these religious leaders are like, our prayers are answered. We've been praying for a way to get rid of Jesus, and now God has blessed us. He sent us the devil and his kid. This is great. Verse 5 says they were delighted and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Just look at those words. They were delighted, right? They're giddy. They get to kill God tomorrow. This is fantastic. This is their space, man. They're so backwards and upside down they can't see it. So they promised to give him money. And it's interesting that the word promise in the original language it has this idea of like they just started pulling it out of their pockets right there on the spot. Like, take my money, boss, and go deal with this. This is awesome. And then even in that, Judas agreed, which is a strong word. It's kind of like he made a covenant, which is weird because covenant will become a theme of this story as we continue on. Here he's making a covenant of corruption. And so everybody's prepping, man. Leaders are prepping to eliminate Jesus Judas and Satan are prepping to figure out how they can accuse and betray Jesus. But meanwhile, Jesus is preparing as well. But he's preparing a special meal. It says in verse 7, Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. So verse 1 said it was coming. It was somewhere in the week. But now we're getting to Thursday and Friday. This is the moment of the Passover. And so to understand the Passover, I take you back to Exodus 12. Right? God has warned Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. He keeps getting hardened and hardened and more hardened. And so these 10 plagues are befallen Egypt. And the final plague is this promise that God will send the angel of death through the land of Egypt and every firstborn, animal or human alike, males, will will die during the Passover. He's gonna send the angel of death through the land and he will slaughter every firstborn male. With the exception of homes that have taken a lamb, sacrificed it, and then put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house. That will be the signal to the angel of death that says, when you come to that space, you'll see that marker and you pass over that house. You don't bring judgment to that house. Rather, that home is sanctuary for that family and you move on to the next one and see if there's sanctuary for that family by this marker. That's the Passover. Then there's this unleavened bread, 
right? And all that is is just God saying, you know what, I want you to make this bread. Don't let it rise. Don't put yeast in it. Just knead it, bake it, eat it, because you gotta be ready to Scooby-Doo. You gotta be able to leave fast. You gotta be able to move, right? Because this is all gonna happen quick. There's gonna be this Passover event, all this devastation, and then my people go to freedom, and you wanna go quickly, So what you have then in the Passover and and unleavened bread ceremony or ritual that they conduct are these two elements, blood and bread, which then for the Passover meal becomes a cup and this crackery kind of bread material. That's what they're going to be thinking about. And so even on the Passover meal, it actually is four different cups representing four different things. And then this crackery material and some other things we'll get into in a minute, that's the image that you kind of glob onto with Passover and unleavened bread festivities. That's the original intention. That's the old intention. But Jesus has intentions for a new intention. And he's going to take these elements and he's going to rearrange them for a new purpose for us to remember So, starting in verse 8, it says, Jesus sent Peter and John ahead, and he said, go and prepare a Passover meal so we can all eat it together. Well, then they asked, where do you want us to prepare it? And he replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. As he enters a house, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? And he will then take you upstairs to a large room that he's already set up, and that is where you should prepare our meal. Can I tell you what I love about this story? It sounds like a spy novel, right? All right, I want you to go to the city. You're going to see a guy. He has a picture. Go talk to him. Give him the secret password. He'll take you to a room. I mean, it's so cool. It's like a spy novel, right? So they went off to the city, and they found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. So the meal, what does it consist of? Well, because of this whole blood and lamb thing, it consists of wine, four cups of wine. Not grape juice, wine, all right? Personal pet peeve, sidebar, all right? But that's what they would do. And then there was this unleavened bread, this kind of crackery matzah, literally, is what it was. And that had this symbolism of well, as well, of moving with speed and moving with haste. And then there was this cup of bitter herbs, which was a dip. Sometimes when we read the Gospel of John and we see where Jesus and Judas dip into the same cup, we always go, oh, it's the bread going into the wine. Now, this isn't coffee and donuts. They didn't dip bread and wine. It's not what they did. No, they would dip it in the bitter herbs, and they would eat the bitter herbs with the crackery bread, representing their bitter slavery in Egypt, right? So there's all symbolism built into this. And then there was the, the lamb, and the lamb was a certain age, one year. It was approved by the priests, It was killed in a certain way. It was drained of blood. And then it was roasted whole. Legs, entrails, everything roasted whole. And then the family had to eat the entire lamb that night. Or you had to share it with extended family. You had to eat the whole thing. And then you go through this whole ceremony. That's the Passover meal. Remembering how God liberated from slavery in Egypt. But like I said, Jesus has different plans for this particular meal. It's an old festival. He's using the images of the old festival, but in a new way, because ultimately what he's getting at is while the old exodus was good, the new exodus is better. 
And while the old Moses is to be remembered and celebrated, there is a new Moses among you. And where the old law had its job, it could not rescue. So I've brought a new law, a new gospel, a new message on a new mount, which was the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. That is kind of the new Exodus, new law, new model, new way of living. And Jesus is wanting them to understand all of that as being tethered to this particular celebration. And here's my favorite part of what Jesus does. He doesn't prepare the room, sit them down, and then give them a lesson on different theories of atonement that they're to go preach. No, what he actually does is he gives them an act of remembrance to perform. Right? It, 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 it's so much more relational and, and grounded in something much more organic to me because of all the things he could choose to capture the essence of what he's going to do, he picks a meal that's meant to be shared. Right? And, and in there, we're going to see embedded into that a servanthood that's embedded into the meal to be shared. And here's what's really fascinating to me about this old versus new. The old Passover, literally, here's what your heart's desire was. You're in your home, the angel of death is coming, and you're like, please, God, pass over my house. Just move past don't slow, don't stop, don't hang. I, I want you to get by as quick as possible because I don't want to face judgment. That's the old. But the new is altogether different because it's not begging God to pass by, but rather it's saying, God, sit down. Draw near. Be with us together. That's a very different model. The old was avoid us. The new is approach us, right? So, so Jesus is beginning to move this direction. So verse 14 says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. He says, for I tell you now that I will not eat this meal again until it is, its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This new thing we as Christians give a lot of different labels to. Some of us call it the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. I don't know why we don't call it the Lord's Dinner. Maybe we're uncomfortable with that. Or a Supper Lunch. The Lord's Lunch, still maybe uncomfortable with that. We stick with Supper. But it's out of 1 Corinthians 11, this idea of a meal and a table with Jesus that's the Lord's table. Others will call it communion. Communion embodies the idea of fellowship. Some will call it the Eucharist, which is the Greek word for giving thanks, which is what Jesus will do, and we'll see him do this a couple of different times in the course of the evening. And even our Catholic friends call this Mass. Ite misa est, which means go, you're sent. That's the essence of Mass, right? So there's all kinds of different Christian traditions around coming to the table. But I love what Fred Craddock said about this. He says, in this act... No bread is just bread, and no wine is just wine. And so on this night, a new ritual is born from the old, a ritual that is for a new community of God to remember what God has done for that community. And so that ritual is a ritual of number two in your notes, the commemoration. The commemoration. 
Like I said, there's four cups of wine at the meal. And realistically, when we get to this first cup in the story, there's two cups in the Gospel of Luke. The only Gospel has two separate cups. But when he gets to this cup, it's probably the second cup of the traditional Passover ceremony where you hold up the cup and then you ask the family, now what is different about this night? So that would be a perfect marker for Jesus to begin to explain. Let me tell you what's different about this night and this Passover cup, unlike every other one since the dawn of the ceremony. It says, first, he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. I'm gonna stop right now and do exactly what he did. Let's give thanks. Jesus, we thank you that you provide for us. We thank you that you are protection to us, that you were willing to come and do a thing for us that we could not do for ourselves. And so as we are beginning to move toward our hearts being prepared for what it is we are remembering in this table, I pray that we come thankful, even when life is hard and painful, maybe we're struggling with things, that thankfulness is a strain. I pray that your spirit would help us clear away that clutter, and for this moment, we can be supremely and joyfully thankful for all your hand in life and how your hand guides us to your eternity and your kingdom and your completeness. May we be faithful to you in all things. We thank you in your name. Amen. So after he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it, he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Now what I did this morning is I came in early and uh, went here in the back and prepared our communion elements. And from one cup, I filled all the cups to capture that spirit and that essence of how this is shared among all of us. Now understand, at this point in the story, this is not the typical communion cup. This is the cup before the idea of the covenant of his blood. So it's the earlier cup, but it captures this idea of solidarity. Share it among yourselves. That's the essence of the Christian faith that you see in its early birth, right? That they had all things in common. They were sharing with one another as there was need. It was authentically a family bound together in Christ. And so even that communion setting, that first communion, the idea that they're serving one another this stuff is iconic of how we should be all the time, every day in our disposition. It's not about me and my and wants. It's, it's about how I give to others and care for others because that's the fabric of the values of the kingdom. And so that happens early in the meal. But then we come to some of the more familiar territory. It says, next, he took some bread and he thanked God for that. I want to thank God again. Can't pray too much, right? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what this is going to represent. That this is about you giving yourself for us, you being broken for us. For you who was king, God, ruler of the universe, you decide, as Paul says, to come and be the least of the least, to become the servant and the slave of all so that you might reach, win, and rescue them all the more. That in and of itself, the juxtaposition from the highest heights to the lowest low shows the demonstration of your love. And so we thank you for your love, your willingness to give yourself for us, your loyalty when we are unfaithful, your love when we were loveless. And so for this, we give you tribute and praise in your name. Amen. So after he gave thanks, it says he took 
the matzah and he broke it. As a part of our communion, our union together in him. At this point, I want to ask our servers to come forward so they might pass this out among all of us. And as they're passing it out, I I want to walk through a little bit of the uniqueness of this symbol, right? Uh, Because there's layers, I think, in what Jesus is doing here. One layer is the obvious, right? When you receive this element in your hands, this bread that isn't just bread, uh, you instantly know what it's meant to capture. If you've been reared in the Christian tradition for any length of time, it's that idea, again, of his body given, his body broken. And what's interesting about this as he's doing it is you you want to think in terms of uh, how he is both given to God and given for you and for me. This is what I love about we're having to share it together. This is great, right? This is the way it's really meant to be, right? But when you understand it that way, you realize that Jesus is both a sacrifice for us, but he's also a sacrifice for God to capture the spirit and the essence of what it is God's really doing in the world. And there's this tremendous selflessness in this, this idea of servanthood, sacrificial in heart, And that's part of what we want to think about. So in a minute, we're going to take this together, so you want to hold it. And he's going to say, do this in remembrance of me. But it's interesting because that that little phrase, do this in remembrance of me, has layers of meaning in it. One is a given, right? So you're going to take this, and in a moment, we're all going to put this in our mouth together, and we're going to think about the cross of Christ. We're going to think about that work that he did for us. And that's part of what communion's about. That's a big part of what communion's about. But I want you to realize the other thing that's happening. As this night has gotten underway, Jesus is the one that's been putting it together. So he's the one that said, all right, I already have some things in place. You guys go to the city, go do this. When we look at the gospel of John and we see that Jesus comes to that meeting time, it says he takes a towel, puts it around his waist, and he begins to wash all the feet of all the disciples. So he becomes the servant. It's his final meal, final night. He should be the guest of honor. They should all be like trying to figure out how they can serve Jesus on this night, but instead he's serving them all. He's the one giving thanks. He's the one breaking bread. He's the one passing it out. He's the servant at the table. Don't just think, oh, it's symbolic. It's this ritualistic thing. It is, but it's more. It's him choosing to be the person that says, I'm going to make myself the least of the least, the lowest of the low. I'll wash dirty feet and I'll pass out bread and I'll be the last to eat and I'll put this whole thing together. But that models what's important to him. What's important to him is this idea of service. And so when we think about doing things in remembrance of him, we're not just remembering the bread as his body, we're remembering the night and how he served. So while we're gonna do this together in a moment and we're gonna remember him in that moment, when we leave this place, we get to serve other people. As we're out in the commons, we get to serve one another. And that is as much an an idea of in remembrance of him as this is right here because we're remembering how he did it, why he did it, the means in which he passed it out and accomplished that night. All of that we should remember as we do this. 
And so with this, as a people together, a new creation in him, we do this in remembrance of him. says, after supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Again, I want the servers to come forward and they can pass out the cup for us as a new community of God with a new ritual born from the old And as they do, I want to highlight three things that Jesus says here. He talks about covenant, he talks about blood, and he talks about sacrifice. And and if we're honest for a minute, those are foreign words to our modern world. I mean, covenant usually only comes up when it comes to if you're breaking like covenant rules in your neighborhood. That's the only time you pretty much hear covenant or the covenant of marriage. It's just not a very common word. And the ideas of blood and sacrifice, we usually ascribe those to maybe warfare, where blood is spilled and sacrifices are made. But here the context is different. First, the word sacrifice. In the old Passover, it was the lamb. And it's interesting because when you really try to understand what's going on with the lamb there, there's two things that come out. Sustenance and shelter. Sustenance in this idea of safety. So in the original Passover lamb, you had to eat the whole thing. And you're getting ready for a big road trip, right? The Israelites were going to go on a big journey. And so God's like, you want to eat up for what's next. So sustenance for the body. But when you put the blood over the doorpost, it also brought shelter to your home. Here's a little side trail here for a second. And I don't want to get too far down this road, but I want us to just think a little bit differently about the Passover lamb and all that it's doing. Because we tend to go, oh, the Passover lamb dies for our sins. Well, that was the day of atonement for them as a culture. Not not the Passover. It's different. The day of atonement was giving of the life of an animal for the sins of the people. But this isn't the day of atonement. This is the Passover On the Passover, yes, you're still being passed over from God's judgment, but it's because you are sheltered and you have sustenance under this lamb. And in the same way, what Jesus is saying is I'm a newer and better Passover lamb. I am a better shelter. I am a far superior sustenance to your life than what you've had before. That is in part what we're remembering with this covenant that he creates. He is our home. He is our shelter. He is our sustenance. Next, we see that it is a covenant created through blood. And again, as modern people, we're like, blood? That's animal sacrifices? Like, we don't do that anymore. Nobody really does that anymore. What is this all about? Well, you have to understand that for them, this was iconic as a culture. So way back in the book of Leviticus, one of my favorite books, honestly. I really love Leviticus, weirdly stated. But in chapter 17, verse 11, we see a little bit of the iconic secret for this. And it's this idea that in the blood, as they understood it, was the life essence of the animal. So when the animal gives its life and it sheds its blood, it's not just dying for the people, but in there, it is giving its life to the people. That's what you want to understand. And giving of blood, it is the imparting of life. It's a transfusion model. So you are having this engrafting of life to you. And so if Jesus is then this lamb and he gives his blood, it's not simply that he's dying for us, though that's true, but he's also giving his life 
to us. His very life essence is imparted to you. This is why when you read throughout the rest of the New Testament, it says your life is in Christ, you're hidden in Christ with God. Like he is the very essence of your life. Colossians chapter three just nails this down. And so we get life from him. And this is a covenant, a pledge of love and loyalty. That's what a covenant is. So what it's saying is God is gonna set his love on you and he's gonna be loyal to you in this covenant even when you're not loyal to him, which is great news because all of these chumps are gonna flee and just be pathetic in the next few hours. And Jesus Jesus says, no, no, I still love you, loyal no matter what because that's what a covenant is. I keep my word no matter what. That is the covenant he will forge. So he pledges himself to us and does what we cannot do for ourselves. And so, I was gonna see, Tim, if I can get one of those cups as well. Jesus is in this portion of the meal where realistically this is the final cup, if you will, right? And if we wanna think about this in any particular way, while there's a lot of deep meaning behind it, part of this is simply a toast. It's a toast to the grace of God. It is a toast to the work of God. Of Christ. And so we toast to him in remembrance of him. Jesus, again, we thank you for your sacrifice and for your grace, for the rich and layered meaning of this table and all that we are remembering as we remember you. We remember what you've done and we remember what you call us to do. May we be faithful in you, in your name. Amen. So, the scene is coming to a conclusion, and you would think with such a beautiful ending right there that it would just taper off into a silent moment. But instead, what we see is number three in your notes, the revelation. For no sooner does the commence in this act of service and sacrifice and commemoration that we're reminded of the plot and the problem regarding Jesus. So he drinks, puts the cup down, and immediately says, but here at this table, sitting among us, is one who is a friend, but a friend who is about to betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die, but what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? Here's what's amazing about this to me. It highlights both the hardness of Judas and the mercy of Jesus. Because Jesus has known this whole time, right, who's going to do this? Who's going to betray him? And yet the whole time he still washed his feet, gave him food, cared for him. Jesus, in essence, kind of kept his word. I'm going to love you and love you to the end, even if you hate me and deny me and sell me out. And that's exactly what's going to happen in this scene with Judas. Jesus keeps loving and Judas stays hardened. And I, I appreciate even how Jesus says, but what sorrow awaits the one who betrays me. Like, I don't think it's one of those things where Jesus is like, I told you so, Judas. Now you regret it, don't you? Right? Like, I don't think it's like that. I think he's like, no, this ends in ruin for you. Right? That's the mercy of God in play. But apparently, what we see from Judas here is that you never wanted to play poker with the dude because he has no tells. Right? Nobody looks at Judas and goes, oh, he's the guy. In fact, what it says in verse 23 is that the disciples began asking each other which of them would ever do such a thing, right? So that's pretty interesting. And, and, and part of the tone in this too, you want to understand a little bit, it's kind of like, they're, who would do this? I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't be the kind of guy that does this. I wouldn't betray him. I wouldn't sell him out. I wouldn't run. So there's a little bit of self-defensiveness in the kind of analysis. 
So they're looking around at the table like, eh, Bartholomew, he's always been a little shady. Uh, Thomas Doubter, maybe he's the guy. You know, like they're, they're trying to weigh each other out. But nobody's thinking about Judas, right? For whatever reason, everybody wasn't like looking at him all simultaneously like, dude, we know you're the one. You're from the South, right? Like they don't do that, right? They're just uncertain. They're introspective. What's strange to me is their introspection immediately turns to like radical dipstickery in like three seconds, all right? It says in verse 24, but then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. That's nuts, man. I'm going to be betrayed. One of you is going to do it. Who's going to do it? Can't be me. I'm awesome. I'm great. Matter of fact, I'm so great, I need to argue now about how great I am. It's where Jesus, you're like, dude, just wipe out the lot and start over. Get the women that have been supporting your ministry since chapter 8. They're going to pull it together. These guys are knuckleheads, right? So at one level, we look at this and we roll our eyes and we go, what are we talking about here? These guys are crazy. But in another way, I look, there's a lesson for us. Because we do tend sometimes to elevate greatness, loyalty, bold statements. I'm in it with you. I'm in it to win it. Ride or die, shotgun, I won't betray you. Words are easy. Words are super easy. And they're just spewing out words of certainty, conviction, everything else. But Jesus values something more than words. In fact, he values one thing above all other things, and this will become the model and how this one thing should inform all of our loyalty, all of our commitment, all of our words of declaration, whatever else. In fact, he's been modeling it all night. Verse 25, Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and the great men lorded over the people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it'll be different. Those who are the greatest among you should be those who take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like the servant. It's like you guys want to sit around arguing about which one of you is the greatest? Do yourselves a favor. Start tripping over one another to serve one another as the least because that's what I care about. And that's the take home for us, right? Like we go, oh, part of what this meal is remembering is, oh yeah, just as Jesus served at the table and he served the world by dying for the world, now I, being a follower of Jesus, I get to be a servant of the world because Jesus served me to rescue me out of the world. It's all about the service. You want to be committed, loyal, driven, focused, tenacious in your faith? Serve. Take the lowest lot, least space, worst seat at the table, and that's the greatest. Verse 27, he says, who's more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? He says, we know it's the one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. When we come to this table every time, he says, I want you to realize that you are a servant. He says, I should be the one celebrated, but I'm the one who's serving you in all things. And so we're meant to serve in all things too. It was interesting. I read a story this week and I shared it in the Everyday Missionary podcast for this week as well. So if you heard it, you already know this. If not, you go back and listen, get a little bit more of the pieces. But, but there was this big conference of Christians here in the last week and a half or two down in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was together for the gospel. So 12,000 Christian leaders come together to be reminded of Jesus, the gospel, the kingdom, how we're meant to transform the world. And so they're all there in downtown Louisville. And a couple of guys went out and they decided, Christian guys at the conference, they just decided to go talk to all the baristas and restaurant owners and servers at the restaurants and things like that and say, hey, was your life bettered in the last three days by 12,000 committed Christians descending on your little corner of the world? Right? 
at best it was, we've had worse. <laughs> and at worst was, they're rude, they don't tip, they leave giant messes, they're difficult, they're entitled. And I thought, how tragic that those who are commissioned to be the servants of the world took advantage of a space. And we should be like Boy Scouts where we leave something better than we found it. And they left downtown Louisville worse for wear. Right? The writer of the article says, we should be leaving the aroma of Jesus everywhere we go. That's out of 2 Corinthians. But in downtown Louisville, 12,000 Christian leaders did not leave the scent of Christ. But not so among us, right? Let it not be among you, Jesus says. When we come to the table, it's an archetype of everything that we're meant to do. It's a table of service. Jesus serves us in his death, right? To model to us servanthood so that we in our newness of life in him can go bring life to others, not by what we demand, by what we expect, but rather by our tone to serve. So today when you go to Extapa, your server is not your server. You are there to serve your server right? Because that's what the table represents. When you go to Starbucks after this, your barista isn't your server. You're there to serve your server in kindness, niceness, pleasant words. They make a mistake. You want them to be like, that person was so nice when I screwed up. I want to screw up with that kind of person all the time. Because that's where you get to serve in the little things as well as in the big things. And we do all of those things because we honor what Jesus said, which is to do everything in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for this very unique, different Sunday. And I thank you for the tone of the table. And I thank you that you call us to something that honestly, when we do it, we feel awesome. Like when we serve, people love the, the effect of serving afterward. And we get to serve for a higher, greater cause. We get to represent you in our serving. So help us to lean into and love what you've called us to. Because in that, we find life. We find that life with you is far better when we do it in the way you call us to do it. And so you enrich us and reward us in that, and, and, and that's what we seek through you, to represent you well. And from that, to feel your life in our lives more. We thank you, Jesus, that life is better with you. I pray that we will share that with the world around us. In your good name, amen.